Thanks for tuning in to this week's sermon at Fountain City Church. We hope that you are blessed by this message today. If you'd like to learn more, you can check out our website at fountaincity.org. Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. We're going to be continuing on in the Gospel of Mark. uh, And I want you to turn to verse 21. Uh, We're going to be jumping all the way, reading all the way to the end of the chapter today. Um, And I want to just do a a, a quick like context reminder. Um, Remember that the Gospel of Mark, for those of you who are joining in new, um, the Gospel of Mark is declaring three things to us. Uh, First off, it's telling us that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. Uh, And that's a a word that just means the anointed king or ruler or leader of Israel. This was um, their understanding that God had actually promised a king to come and to rule the nation of Israel and to return them to power. Uh, And so Jesus is the Christ. He is the anointed king of Israel. Uh, But secondly, Jesus is also not just a man. He's not just a king who's coming to rule over the nation of Israel or, as we understand it in the Scriptures, to rule over the world, over all the nations. But he is also the Son of God and the revelation of who God is and what he's like. Okay, So those are the two first things. But then the third, I mean, as we push into the Gospel of Mark, the stuff that we begin to wrestle with, the thing that we begin to feel is that This revelation that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God, that it makes a demand on me personally. That when Jesus walks into the room and there is this wild declaration that this is in fact who he is, uh, that that means that I have to respond to that. And so all through the Gospel of Mark, we actually see people responding with urgency to this declaration of who Jesus is. Uh, And so the question is not just who is Jesus, but what does it mean that Jesus is in fact the Christ and the Son of God? What does that mean for you today? As you're sitting in your living room at home in the middle of uh, COVID-19 in the year 2020 in Columbus, Georgia, or in Midland, or in Pine Mountain, what does it mean that Jesus is the anointed Messiah, the leader of the nation of Israel and of the world, and that he's also the Son of God? What demands does that make on you in terms of how you spend your money and how you live towards strangers and enemies and how you, uh, how you practice politics and who you love and what you watch on TV? Like, What are the demands that it makes on our lives that Christ is inviting us into his kingdom and to his way of life? And so uh, we're going to read about that this morning in Mark 5, 21. And uh, we're just kind of going through the gospel of Mark and allowing the scripture to speak to us. And so I want you to dive in with me as we read. And we're actually just going to read little bits and pieces and then stop and kind of talk through that bit and piece and then move on. Okay. Um, So Mark chapter 5, verse 21. You got your Bible out? I think you do. All right, here we go. It says, when Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. And then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, and he pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come, put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. And so Jesus went with him, and a large crowd followed, and they pressed around him. Now, here in uh, Mark chapter 5, we're engaging with a couple of impossible scenarios of people who are going through some really incredible difficulty and hardship. Uh, And the first man that we bump into is this guy named Jairus. And we know very little about Jairus except this. Firstly, that he is a synagogue leader or ruler. And secondly, that he's the father of a little girl who is dying. 
Um, interestingly enough, the name Jairus actually means God enlightens. And so this story is about a man whom God is enlightening to the truth of who he is, and Jairus is named this. So we don't know if like Jairus took on this name after the story and after he's been enlightened, or if this is kind of the promise over his life. Um, but one commentator says this about Jairus and the, the role or the responsibility that he held as a synagogue leader. It says, Jairus must have been a person of some considerable importance. The ruler was the administrative head of the synagogue. He was the president of the board of elders. He was responsible for the good management of the synagogue. He was responsible for the conduct of the services. And this isn't written here, but he would actually schedule out all of the rabbis and the, the teachers of the law to come in and to share with the people in accordance with the law of Moses. So this is really important. He goes on to say he didn't usually take part in the, the services himself, but he was responsible for the allocation of duties and for seeing that they were carried out with all seemliness and good order. The ruler of the synagogue was one of the most important and most respected men in the community. And so the synagogue was at the center point of Jewish community. It was like the one church for that entire location. And it was this place of teaching and instruction that actually took the law of Moses and helped people to understand what it was that God was requiring of them. And the synagogue leaders were responsible for everything, including um, uh, those who came in to disseminate the scripture, the Torah, in front of the people. And so I want you to understand this because it, it's, it's valuable information to know how reputable Jairus is. And in this moment, we see him laying down his reputation and his dignity in order to, to come into contact with Jesus. But guys, Jairus was a man of reputation and he was an insider. And so this wasn't a small moment to see a guy like this coming to Jesus. There was something that was pushing him to come to this moment of sacrificing um, everything that he could lose in coming to this kind of um, rogue rabbi, Jesus, right? And, and we see here that it was his sick daughter. And this causes my heart to really think about through the years, like how many people I have seen come to Jesus in moments of incredible brokenness and stress and hardship. You know, lots of times people will actually come to faith when they look around and they realize that there is no hope or no answer apart from Jesus. And I think we as the church, man, we have to have these moments where we see in our own lives, our testimony is that for some of us, we arrived at Jesus in moments of brokenness and hopelessness. And the world around us right now is looking desperately for a word of hope and a vision for grace and mercy in our world where there is no grace and no mercy. People are looking and they're searching. And in this moment, we see exactly this from Jairus. Imagine if you're him. If you've spent years and years listening to all the teachers of the law and the famous rabbis coming into your synagogue. You're, you're personally spending time to schedule them to come and sit. And so you're having dinners with them and sitting and asking questions about God, asking questions about humanity and how God interacts with humanity. But there's something in this moment that happens. Jairus's experience with his daughter being sick leaves him with this notion that out of all of the teachers of the law, out of every rabbi who's been sharing, he knows that none of them have power or authority to offer him in his situation. And when his daughter falls ill, we actually see Jairus begin to search for what is real and true and powerful, even at a cost to himself. You know, this is like a theme throughout the scriptures. There are people who come in search of the truth from Jesus. 
There are people who are seeking out the, the revelation of what is real. We, we see this moment with different individuals, with Nicodemus, who is another leader among the Jewish people, and he comes at night and he actually begins to question Jesus about the truth. His heart longs to know the truth, but Nicodemus did it at night under the cover uh, of, of darkness. But Jairus comes in full daylight because he is urgent and he is desperate and he is pursuing Jesus. Verse 22 actually tells us that Jairus comes himself. Now this is another really important thing. Jairus is a man of means and reputation. He doesn't have to go anywhere himself. He could have just sent his servant. He could have sent a family member. Remember, his, his daughter is lying on her deathbed. And so for him to pursue Jesus himself in the flesh in a moment of desperation tells us something about what's going on here. And so we see that this respected man, Jairus, he, he surrenders his dignity and his pride, and he actually comes, and this phrase, this refrain uh, that's repeated in Mark chapter 5 is that Jairus falls at the feet of Jesus. And I want to, uh, I think it's important that we point that out um, because it's repeated twice in just a matter of a few verses. Uh, there's something in this phrase that Mark wants us to grab a hold of. Um, he is talking to us about the posture of those who are coming to Jesus. He, he is talking to us about a position of desperation. And we see this in Jairus. He is, he's desperate and he's undignified in his pursuit of Jesus. I don't know if you've been desperate before. I think our culture and even our own sense of pride sometimes, it keeps us from this place of brokenness and humility because we want to look like we're in control. But Jairus is not, he is not concerned about looking in control. He's desperate. And the Gospel of Mark uses this phrase twice, I think, to show us that the heart of those who are earnestly seeking Jesus, his intervention in our lives and his his leadership over our lives, that it requires a kind of desperation that pushes us out of our cultural norms into a life of, of humble and sincere pursuit. And I don't know if you've been like this, if you've been at the, the place of frantic search or an urgency to find God, to hear his voice for your life and in your moment. But this is where we find Jairus. He's, he's not couth. Right? He's, he's not like maintained and clean and controlled. It says he, he comes and he falls at the feet of Jesus and he earnestly pleads. There is a sense of urgent desperation. And notice Jesus' response. I wonder sometimes like how, how Jesus interacts with people who are part of this ruling class or an elite, you know, because they're treating Jesus as this rogue um, uh, person who's just stirring people up, like a, like a political uprising. And yet in this moment, Jesus is so tender, right? He doesn't turn him away because of his elite posture, um, because he's part of the ruling class. And Jesus, even among a crowd of people, hears this man's plea for mercy. And Jesus, who is full of compassion and love, he simply agrees and he goes. And I wonder sometimes for us, if we resist the notion of asking Jesus to intervene in our own lives because we feel like maybe he's too busy or that God is somehow like checking out all the places where we have failed him and he will actually like bypass our need out of some sense of righteous 
um, of indignation toward us. But in this moment, we actually see that the posture of Jesus is always to practice compassion and to, to go, to, to move in. Mark uh, 5.25 goes on to say that Jesus actually walks with him. And a crowd of people actually gather around him like, this is fun for people. People are actually seeing this real moment where Jairus is saying, look, my daughter is dying. And they are expecting to see a miracle. Like they want to see something. So people flock to this situation. And in verse 25, it says that among this crowd of people, there is a woman who was there who was subject to bleeding for 12 years. Verse 26, she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. And when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and she touched his cloak. And because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Now listen to this. Uh, in this moment where Jairus is so urgent and pleading and taking Jesus to his home, there is this, this, this kind of shutdown moment where Jesus is stopped by this person who has this other agenda for him. Now, the Jews had some pretty intense social codes to keep sickness out and impurity out from the masses so that they could ensure the safety and the cleanliness and even the worship of that community. And this is a really important characteristic. I think sometimes we view the scriptures on this and we think, man, God's really judgmental. Why would he put people in places where they can't get to him if they're going through things? But God was actually setting up a standard of safety for his people. He, he wanted them to be clean in a world that didn't have all the modern um, inventions that keep cleanliness, like modern plumbing and all of those things. There were people who were walking through the wilderness. And so God put in place these standards for helping people to maintain purity and cleanliness. But he also wanted them to understand the fear of the Lord. For God, he wanted to dwell among his people. But for those of us who, man, maybe you're new to the church, like we serve a God who is holy and we are people who are sinful. And we have to wrestle with the tension between bringing sin and brokenness and humanity into the presence of a holy and pure and majestic God. And it's not that God wants our, un he's scared of our uncleanliness or our impurity rubbing off on him. He knows that because we are in material bodies that are fragile and tender, if we bring our sinfulness into his holy presence, it actually can cause a judgment that kills us. Our bodies cannot handle his holiness, his manifest presence like that. And so God actually created laws and codes to make sure that people understood how to deal with their impurity and their uncleanliness before they came into places of worship. Um, and so verse 25 actually tells us that this woman has had this disease for 12 years. I want you to like grab a hold of that in your mind. Circle that in your Bible if you want to. Like underline it. I think sometimes we, we don't put that into the context of our own lives. How it would feel to be in a place of suffering and desperation for 12 years. Uh, and this thing seems incurable. But we notice here that it's more than just a physical disease, right? But because of the climate of early Judaism, because of the climate of, um, of Israel and their laws, this was far more than just physical. Listen to what the commands were for someone in her condition. This is out of Leviticus chapter 15, verse 25. It says, when a woman has a discharge of blood. Now, it's talking about kind of like a woman's period, her, her monthly cycle. But there is a situation where this lady has actually been bleeding like this for 12 years straight. And so this is the, the command. When a woman has a discharge of blood for many days at a time, 
other than her monthly period, or she has a discharge that continues beyond her period, she's going to be unclean as long as she has the discharge, just as in the days of her period. Any bed she lies on while her discharge continues will be unclean, as in her bed during her monthly period. And anything she sits on will be unclean, as during her period. Anyone who touches them will be unclean. They must wash their clothes and bathe with water, and they will be unclean till evening. And so, you know, even in studying this passage, I was thinking about the level of discomfort that we have faced with four months of uh, the, the threat of infection. Right, the, the threat of people carrying some disease that's going to rub off on us. And the level of like life shifts that we've had to go through because of other people being sick around us. Can you imagine carrying this same kind of threat of danger of how people are going to interact with you and how you can interact with them for 12 years? Can you imagine how it must shape and change your culture and your life and your mental well-being, that everything that you're thinking about from the time you get up to the time you go to sleep is how you cannot interact with other people. Think about this. Can you imagine the frustration and the resentment that others carry toward you every time you come into contact with them? They know you have just made them ceremonially unclean. Like, think about it. If she goes to the market, the guy who runs the market, he has to leave his job, close close down his, his shop for the day, he has to wash his clothes, wash his body, and sit there until evening. And so this lady's presence ensured the discomfort and inconvenience of people around her all the time. And if it was on the Sabbath, if they became unclean on the Sabbath, they couldn't go and make sacrifices for their own sins. They couldn't go and worship God at the temple. They couldn't go into the place of worship and glorify God. They were separated from his presence. This lady was a threat to other people's way of life. Think about that. No visitors at your home, no physical contact with people around you, constantly being reminded that you are isolated and broken and alone for 12 years. Man, I I can't wrap my mind around it. This was a physical sickness and this was a, a social sickness. Like she couldn't even be in tangible relationship with people. And it was a spiritual sickness. She couldn't go to the temple. She couldn't be with her people, her covenant people. She couldn't understand the promises that had been given to her by God as a daughter of Israel. Her body knew the weakness of bleeding day after day after day. Her heart and mind knew the emotional battle of having no answers. No matter where she turned, the scripture tells us in verse 26 that she had actually suffered a great deal under the care of doctors And she'd spent all the money she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. Think, man, can you just crawl into her perspective for a moment? For 12 years, her life has just been declining. Day after day after day, physically weak, emotionally corrupt and bankrupt. And everything the professionals in the world around her had to offer her came up short and actually made her life a living hell. It made it worse. She is broke. She is sick. And she is alone. What happens when those who should have the answers have none? Man, you got to feel hopeless, right? And there's this spiritual sickness as well. She can't enter to God's presence. She can't come before him. She can't even make her supplication in the temple courts because of this sickness that is out of her control. 
And for some of you today, you're sitting in your homes and you feel the same way. Like there is this thing that is out of your control that is against you. And somehow, man, we lose sight of the long suffering of this woman of 12 years and of the long suffering of people who are around us. But in this moment, this woman has faith to come to Jesus. And in fact, it says that she couldn't find anyone who had a solution to her ailment until verse 27. Look at it with me. It says, when she heard about Jesus, like everything has been in decline, but when she heard about Jesus, she came and she touched him. Think about that for a moment. 12 years of everything sliding off into the abyss of despair. And in this moment, she hears about Jesus. Everything changes. She, she, she is bolstered in her faith that if she can just come up and touch him. She, she's, she doesn't dare ask anybody if she should do this. She just, she just does it. All those years of searching for hope. All those years of searching for solutions. And then one day, she just hears someone talking about Jesus. Friends, our world is consumed right now with uh, commercials of products and lifestyles that are supposed to fix everything, Right? like a potato, a potato peeler that does it all. There's one of my favorites is on Instagram right now where this, uh, this man takes like two or three peelers and he's like shaving cabbage backward and forward. And I'm mesmerized. I'm like, how does it happen? You know, he's got a, a carrot peeler or a potato peeler. And he's using all these different devices, like a little mandolin to like shave vegetables. I don't, I don't know what it is about getting older where I'm like, I need that in my life. I need a, I need something that can shave cabbage forwards and backwards. But all of us, man, our culture is consumed with products and lifestyles that are supposed to be the solution to make the world right and to make your life work, right? Uh, a brand of alcohol that ensures that your cares will just disappear or a type of car that's going to make you sexy like Matthew McConaughey, which I will buy that vehicle, right? But when we exhaust the empty promises of a world that orbits around despair and false hope, there is only one name who the world longs to hear, who possesses the hope that we are searching for. It's the name of Jesus. This lady's looking for 12 years for a solution, and then she hears someone talk about Jesus. And I'm just reminded in that of the power of our own testimony and the power of us learning how to share stories of Jesus' faithfulness in our lives. How has he shown up in your life? What are those moments that are anchor points in your own story, when, when life gets tough, right? When things get hard, you can go back to them. And they are these moments, these pillars of hope and peace and reminders of the goodness and the faithfulness of God. And then when other people begin to hear you talk about Jesus, they realize that the, the thing that they're looking for is not a potato peeler and it's not like the perfect brand of alcohol or this sexy guy who's going to make your life perfect, it's not. It's, it's not in your Enneagram number, as, as fun as that can be. It's, it's not in any of those things. It, it is in Jesus. And if we're not um, actively pursuing telling other people about the reason for the hope that we have, what are we doing, right? She comes into contact with the name of Jesus. And in verse 29, she, she touches him. Verse 28, she knows if she can just get through the crowd and touch him, everything will be different. She's convinced, she's confident. And it says in verse 29 that immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt it in her body that she was freed from suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him and he turned around in the crowd and he asked, 
Who touched my clothes? And this is like a weird moment in the scriptures where we just don't have great theology for it. All right, we know that Jesus is both a man. He is the son of man, but he's also the son of God. And we also know that like he's, he's really aware of what God's up to, but in this moment, something different happens. Jesus is the only human uh, who has ever been in a situation like this. He, he is, he's the only one who can come into contact with an unclean, impure person who doesn't get infected by the impurity and uncleanness. Now, this is a theme throughout the Gospels, that in humanity, there is no hope or solution in and of ourselves, right? Like if any other person in that crowd, and in fact, every person that was coming into contact with her was becoming unclean. They just didn't know it. But in this moment, Jesus is the only person who an impure, unclean person can come into contact with, and she doesn't spread or infect him with her impurity. But actually, what happens is that his purity, his authority, and his power infect her. He is the only one who we can come to with the maladies of our soul, with the brokenness of sin in my life. And instead of me uh, infecting him with what's broken in me, he infects me with what is so good and beautiful and pure in him. He is the spotless, the sacrificial lamb of God who takes away my sin. And he does exactly that. And we don't have any answers for this, but in this moment, Jesus has no idea what just happened. Like, how would you like to be there in this moment where Jesus, who knows the will of the Father and is perfectly aware of what God is doing, and in times, he has such a deep discernment and uh, uh, he gets words of knowledge. He knows what people are thinking. But right now, he spins around and says, who touched me? Like, Jesus doesn't know what has happened. Somehow, this woman, by faith, accesses the power of God flowing from the body of Jesus without his knowledge or explicit permission. Take a moment and just think about that. She taps into the power of God without Jesus being aware of it. And he knows the power went out from him. She feels the healing and he feels the power pouring out. But in the limitation of his divinity and the, the fullness even of his humanity in this moment, he's unaware of what's fully happened. And this tells me something for us. This tells me that we don't always understand how faith and healing work, but that faith plus perseverance is irresistible to God. You know, I think through the years we've done a lot of damage to people by trying to form watertight doctrine around healing. We, we want to spell it all out and for everything to be watertight. But this story kind of just leaves us with questions, not a whole lot of answers. It leaves us with this, with this sense that there is more that is possible by faith in Christ than we are fully comfortable with. It leaves us with this sense that sometimes that there is a desire in our heart that like that Jesus honors the will and the faith of this lady to come to him and to pursue healing when she doesn't even ask him. And I'm not quite sure what we can do with this, but I want you to hear this, that faith plus perseverance are irresistible to God. God delights in seeing people who are perseverant in faith that will lean in when their story and their life and their situation seem dire and broken. That irresistible, persevering faith 
calls the heart of God to us. It calls the, the response of the Almighty to his people. I, I imagine if this lady had asked anyone if this was a good idea, they would have collectively said, no, this is not a good idea. Do not leave your house. Do not infect populations of people. Do not cause them to be ceremonially impure. Don't dishonor the rabbi, right? You're going too far. This is unwise. It's even sinful. But Jesus invites us into the story of a woman who perseveres. And Jesus invites you to ask daring things because you believe he is who he says he is. There are all kinds of things in here that no one would agree with. No one would agree with her doing this. And yet, and yet, the Holy Spirit saw fit for this story to be chronicled in Mark chapter 5 so that you can also see permission is granted for you to press in and to persevere in asking. And there's permission for you to ask. There's permission for you to pursue Jesus. A lot of times we want to have the answers around how, how all this works. And honestly, I just don't even think that that's what Jesus is pointing at right here. It's not like figure out the theology. This is mystery. But he is inviting us into a lifestyle of persevering faith because God delights. He delights in it, right? You know, when I was thinking through this, I really feel like long-term suffering brings a real sense of powerlessness in us. It makes us feel like maybe God wants this for my life when things don't quickly change. And I know many of you who are in our community, you have gone through long-term suffering. I can see your faces in my mind. I know your story in my heart. Uh, that It feels at times like I need to just accept that this is God's will for my life. Friends, can I remind you, this woman was chronically ill for 12 years prior to something happening. 12 years. And while I know that God can recycle the most broken and heinous parts of our life for our good and for his glory, man, he implicitly sends Jesus to destroy the works of Satan. I want to remind you, the mission of Jesus is to destroy the works of Satan. What am I saying? I'm saying there is permission to ask again. Maybe your heart has stopped asking. Maybe it is too tender and too close to you to keep leaning in and asking when you have felt God's silence in the past. There is permission to ask again, and not just a normal ask, a bold, a confident, um, an inconvenient ask, something that demands something from us. Because what we see in this woman is this incredible faith that seizes on the goodness and the mercy and the power of God to meet her in her need 12 years in. There is permission to ask. Verse 33, then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, listen to it, came and fell at his feet. There's that, that phrase again. And trembling with fear, she told Jesus the whole truth. And he said to her, you should not have come here. No. <laughs> he says, daughter. Right? He's taking the position of the father. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Be freed from your suffering. What is the reward of her uncouth, inconvenient, irresistible kind of faith pursuit of Jesus? Daughter. Daughter. I just picture him like taking her face in his hand and saying, daughter, 
Your faith has healed you. Go and be free from suffering. There's that phrase, she fell at his feet. She's desperate. She is uncouth. It is inconvenient. It is uncultured. It is an, a radical pursuit of Jesus. In verse 35, it says, while Jesus was still speaking, this incredible miracle, everybody has seen it. All the hope has lifted in the atmosphere. People believe it is possible to be healed of even this kind of disease. But while he's still speaking, some people came from Jairus' house and uh, they say, your daughter's dead. And they said, why bother the teacher anymore? Can you feel the deflation? <laughs> like there has been this, this epic moment. Maybe you've had this in your life where God shows up in this incredible way. And then it feels like you just get slammed right after that. And the crowds are with Jesus and they're feeding off of this moment. Faith, the faith that something great has happened. And we need to be people who cultivate a mindset around what is happening and not just what's not happening. But they see this thing happen and then just on the heels of it, Jairus' household comes and says, don't bother him anymore, she's dead. Now, this is a weird moment for us. I mean, we've nearly forgotten about Jairus, Right? But Jairus, intent in this moment to get Jesus to his dying daughter, has to be destroyed. I mean, can you imagine? Jesus has agreed to go to his house. He's gotten his hopes up that his little girl is going to be healed. And then someone else comes and, like, takes up his time. Someone else stalls Jesus on the journey. Can you imagine the mindset of Jairus? Like, hey, this is incredible, but Jesus, can you move it along? Like, do you remember me? Do you remember my daughter? Do you remember my situation? But Jesus is not in a hurry. And there's a reason, right? What are you thinking if you're Jairus right now? What is it that you're meditating on in your heart? I really think that this can be a beautiful picture for all of us because we have all been in those moments where we feel like when God is, he is active in someone else's life that somehow he is inactive in mine. That somehow God's disposition toward other people is different than his disposition toward me. And in this moment, it's confirmed because Jairus hears his daughter is dead. His hope has been snuffed out. And many of us, just like Jairus, we have this feeling like, sure, that lady is healed and set free, but my daughter is dead. God, you're good to him, but what about to me? I want you to stop for a moment. I just want you to close your eyes and ask the question, like, do I feel like that today? Or have I felt like that recently? That God is active and present in other people's story, but somehow he is silent and distant and absent in mine. And I don't think it's any uh, like coincidence that these two moments are sandwiched together here in Mark chapter five. I think he puts them together for a reason, right? We want to understand why it seems that we can see God's fingerprints on other people's lives and in other people's story, but not in ours. One of the things that I felt like I've carried since I was young and that the Lord has continued to free me from is this kind of poverty mindset that somehow um, what I deserved from God, I was never going to get. Or somehow that God loved and intervened other people. He loved them more than he loved me because I didn't see him showing up in my story in the same way that I saw him showing up. And others. And one of the beautiful things that God wants to enlighten our hearts to is that He is the faithful God who is there for you just like He is there for others. 
And sometimes when things don't stack up, we actually have to exercise our faith and our trust in the Lord. But we get to believe and to have our faith spurred on by the stories of other people who God has answered for them as well. Now, I haven't asked permission to share this story. Of my buddy Rob used to tell this story from one of his friends. Uh, he said he was having a dream one night and he was asleep and he was standing in this open valley with these mountains rising up on the horizon all around him. And he was there with an angel. And this angel had a measuring stick and he said, okay, how far do you wanna go with the Lord? And this guy who was having the dream said, I wanna go further than anyone else has ever gone. And he said in the dream, there was a still moment where the angel looked around and he said, there's nobody else here. There's, there's no comparison. How far do you wanna go with the Lord? You know, one of the deep revelations of our life must be that we don't, get to or need to measure our lives against the lives of others, but that God is giving us an open invitation into this depth of intimacy and experiences and encounters with Him. And in order to really be faithful to those spaces, to be with Jesus, we have to take our eyes off of those to the left and the right of us who we think maybe we need to measure up against. And instead, we lean into what God is doing in us, in the here and now. And that's so difficult at times because we see so many, like we're in the age of Instagram where everything is promoted uh, uh, and everything is kind of like, I don't know, specialized and highlighted and everybody's life looks beautiful on Instagram. But what does it look like for us to be fully present and aware of what God is doing in our story, right? Jairus' faith waned. He, he felt that it was too late now. Everything he asked Jesus to do was gone. There's no hope for his daughter anymore. But Jesus has an interesting way of responding to this. Verse 36, it says, Ignoring what they said, Jesus told him, Don't be afraid, just believe. Now, now here is a moment. Jairus has had his, his faith set on Jesus healing his daughter who is alive of sickness. Right? There's a certain context. There are boundaries for this. My daughter is alive, but there is a, a brief amount of time, Jesus, if you don't intervene in this moment, then I, I can't possibly have hope. But Jesus blows the barriers off of it. Okay, so now the situation has changed. It is far more dire, far more drastic. And his response is, do not be afraid, just believe. So Jairus, your, your expectation of my goodness is actually diminished from the level of my goodness. Your anticipation of my power and my authority are actually diminished from what they should be. Don't be afraid, just believe. So he goes on, verse 37. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Man, what a good life that you get to just follow Jesus right at his hip and watch what he does. That is the invitation of mine and your life, by the way, through the Holy Spirit is that we get to just sit at the hip of Jesus and watch. We get to just be front row seat uh, spectators. And then we get to be participators because he does the work through us. Verse 38, when they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. And he went in and he said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? Child's not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. And after he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him, and he went in there where the child was, and he took her by the hand, and he said to her, Talitha ko'um, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the little girl stood up, began to walk around, 
She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. And he gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this, and he told them to give her something to eat. Listen to this. Listen to this story. Jairus' hope was shaken because the conditions for his expectation for God to break in were broken. His daughter died. His anticipation for God's goodness is it only goes this far. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. Believe. And notice that when Jesus enters this house, it is inconvenient to the community around him. They want to enter into wailing, and he says she's just sleeping. You know, sometimes this invitation to live a life of faith means that you are going to see things differently, even inconveniently for those around you, where they want to move into despair, into fear, anger, frustration. Sometimes, I'm not saying that those things are wholly wrong. I'm saying that there are times where faith invites us to live inconveniently aware of the reality of God's kingdom and of his power and what's available through him, regardless of what the circumstance teaches us. Some of you, you've got things going on in your life right now that by all intents and purposes, it looks broken. Like you, It looks like you just need to walk away. But God's kingdom, the presence of Jesus, the, the purity and the power and the authority of King Jesus demands something different in the way that we respond. For Jairus, he felt like there was no hope, but Jesus is the master of what we see as hopeless situations. You know, Mark 5, if I was just to sum it up, it tells us two impossible stories and how with God all things are possible. Two situations that if the evidence was given to us, we would all collectively sigh and say, poor things, poor things. I hope at least the suffering wasn't too severe. And in this moment, Jesus says that there is something different that his power and his presence and authority wants to accomplish. You know, Hebrews 11 tells us this, says that faith is the substance of what we hope for. It's the tangible stuff that is in the, the heart of hope. It is the substance of what I hope for. It is the evidence of what I can't see. Faith invites you and I to stand in this place of seeing the promises and the purposes of God uh, in a clearer way than the circumstances of brokenness around us. And it doesn't detach us from reality. We are firmly rooted in reality, but it, it aligns our hearts with a God for whom all things are possible. And for some of you, you're sitting in your rooms today or in your living room, and there are some impossible things in your marriage or in your body or in your workplace. There's some impossible things going on relationally and emotionally in your life. And to you, Jesus says, don't be afraid, just believe. Believe. What does it mean to just believe? What does it mean to, to divorce fear as a filter that I look at my situation through? and to just believe, to trust in the goodness and the kindness and the mercy of Jesus and believe. You have permission to ask. For some of you, it is a threat uh, to, to your mindset to ask again. And I just wanna encourage you, there's permission to ask. There's permission to ask. You know, I had the thought when I was preparing for this, what does it look like for our community as a whole to be desperate in asking uh, for the resolution of problems in other people's lives. 
What does it look like for us as a community to actually go after people's healing who have not yet seen healing? What does it look like for us to go after the reconciliation of broken marriages as a community? Like, are we willing to sense this invitation to a to an irresistible kind of faith that perseveres in prayer, perseveres in encouragement, that even when we don't hear an audible yes, we can still ask and believe. What does it look like for us to do this as a community? How desperate are you, not only for your circumstance, but for your brother or sister's circumstance? You know, I find it poetic that here in this passage, um, That on two occasions, the people who are so desperate, they come and they fall at the feet of Jesus. And what are Jesus' final words to this little girl? He says, little girl, I tell you, get up. It's all in this passage. We see people of desperation coming hungry. The picture of our lives coming desperate for hope, desperate for some freedom from our addiction or our sickness or our situation. And here we are at the feet of Jesus clinging to him in desperation with the posture of a beggar, which I think is a good posture. The posture of a beggar pleading earnestly for Jesus to intervene. And what does Jesus say? I hear you. Don't be afraid, believe, and get up. Jesus hears you. Our only hope is Jesus. Politically, socially, spiritually, emotionally, mentally. I'm not saying, you know, avoid all the things that brings about emotional health. We love that. Go to counseling if you need counseling. Amen. But the only one who can heal your soul, who can transform your heart, renew your spirit, and heal your body is Jesus. It's Jesus. He he is salvation. This word here, even when this lady is freed, when she is healed, you guys know that word is sozo. It's an absolute healing, not just of body, but of mind and soul. She moves into the shalom, the peace, the well-being of God. I wonder where you're at today. Maybe you're falling down. Maybe you're gripping the feet of Jesus today and pleading earnestly for him to respond to your point of need. I want you to know that he hears you. First John tells us that when we pray according to his will, we know that we have what we have asked. Sometimes it takes an irresistible, persevering faith, and you have permission to exercise that kind of faith. When all the world around you says, no, you should stop asking. No, maybe this isn't healthy anymore for you to believe. You have permission. And I want to encourage you and invite you today. Maybe (laughs) you're the woman at 30 paces from Jesus, and you're not even asking. You're not quite sure if you want to do this. Like it costs too much. You're going to be exposed and vulnerable if something doesn't happen, right? I want to encourage you maybe today to re-engage asking and trusting and believing. Maybe you're already there. You're gripping the feet of Jesus and you're pleading and begging, God, do you hear me? Do you see me? Will you respond? And to you, he says, don't be afraid, just believe. Maybe you're past the point, like Jairus' daughter, and things are so far gone that you just feel like, man, I've got to give up just so that I can move on. And to you, I believe that Jesus says, I see you. 
get up. I'm listening. I don't know where you're at today, but I want to encourage you that Jesus is our only hope and that every one of us is invited into the kind of faith where even the dramatic, even the robust, even this uh, wild permission is given to us all to come to him and to ask audacious, big requests of him when they're lined up with his will because we know that he hears us and he is good. Will you bow your heads? Jesus, would you remind our hearts today again that you are good and you are kind, that even when we feel like you have forgotten about us, that you are faithful and you see us and you delight in meeting our need. Father, today we move from the back of the crowd back to your feet. Once again, we throw ourselves down and we grip your feet as beggars. And we know that you delight to see our hunger and our thirst for your intervention. As a community, God, we come back to your feet and we cry out for our brothers and sisters in need. Father, we ask you that you would resurrect even those things that we feel like are dead, even those dreams or those requests that we feel like are too far gone, that you would blow out the boundaries on those things and you would remind us that you are the God who is more than enough. Today, God, I pray that you would intervene in broken bodies, that men and women in their homes would feel the healing power of Jesus right now in the name of Jesus, that you would just begin to heal bodies. By your stripes, Jesus, we are healed. I thank you. You paid for our healing on the cross. It is finished. Father, where we don't understand, Father, we just continue to sow trust. We take off fear. We just live in trust to continue to ask, Father, and to believe that you are good, even in moments where we don't understand. So we cling to you and we ask and we live into your resurrection power today. In Jesus' name. Amen.